Let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be together. And God, I just praise you as I, even as I come in of so, so many of our church family here tonight, just fellowshipping, uh, enjoying each other, laughing together. Just thankful, God, that you have not left us alone in this world, but you've you have promised that you're always with us. We don't ever have to worry about that. You're always with your people, never leaving us nor forsaking us. And at the same time, God, you have given us a family to be with, not a perfect family, not one that is always, uh, always the most fun to be around in some ways, but God, one that is always there for us that we can fellowship one with another with. And so, Father, we praise you for uh, giving us a church home and a church family to be a part of. God, we thank you tonight as we look to this passage and as we, as we look to Exodus and chapter 2 and consider uh, Moses, Father, we, we praise you for, for the heroes of the faith that have gone on before us. But most importantly, God, we praise you for the plan of redemption that you have seen through from the beginning to the end. And so, God, tonight we rejoice in that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I love how, I mean, obviously the Bible is one of the great works of literature throughout all of history. Um, I want to say something here, and I, I, don't, I don't have to say this and probably shouldn't, um, but sometimes I, I, I like to say things like this just to see if y'all get mad at me. Um, people always talk about uh, the... Uh, one of the problems we have in society and other things is that the Bible left the schools, right? They say that kind of stuff. But what we really want to know is as Christian people, we don't want God's word to be treated just like another piece of literature. This is not Homer's Iliad. This is not, this is not even to kill a mockingbird. This is nothing like that. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God, right? And while it is a beautiful work of literature, it's different than anything else that's ever been produced by man. And so this is not to be handled in some way as just some other piece. This is God's word and should be handled in that way. And to yield his word is to teach his word. And so as we look at this, though, I love how succinct Exodus chapter 1 is. I mean, you go from the end of Genesis and Joseph and the family, they're all in Egypt and we skipped 400 years here, and 430 years or so, we skipped all the way forward, and in one simple chapter, they just summarized the whole deal, told us everything that's going on, told us how God has fulfilled promises. Y'all see what I'm saying? It's just quickly how well this is put together. It could almost be a movie, and if it was a movie, it would probably be six or seven hours long, like the Ten Commandments. And none of y'all have ever watched that from beginning to end. Nobody can do that. And, and, and But at the same time, you read this and you wonder, how did they get a six-hour movie out of that deal? You know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's, but but when, you, when you come to this, it's just so well put together. So Exodus chapter 1 summarizes the fact that God had, just as he had promised, created Israel into a great nation. Having started with Abram in the Ur of the Chaldeans, went to that promised one, which is Isaac, a little rocky to get there, but finally Isaac, went to Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons who did some crazy stuff too, and then the inheritance that they get ending up in Egypt, and now they're in Egypt. And as it tells us in chapter 1, 
Verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so ultimately we see here that just as God had promised Abram, I will make you into a great nation. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God has fulfilled that promise of making them great. Making them great. And then in making them great, it tells us what happens. There's one Pharaoh who rises to power some many years after Joseph, who, as it says before, said uh, he did not know Joseph in verse 8. Remember, as I said last week, that's not necessarily the fact that he hadn't heard of Joseph. Maybe it is, but the consideration is that he's saying he doesn't care about Joseph anymore and the promise that Pharaoh had made to Joseph that his people would be safe. Seemingly, up until this point throughout these 400 years, that that was the promise that had been handed down. Those are Joseph people. Joseph saved Egypt from, from, from disaster during, during the great famine of yesteryear, and he protected them. And not only save them and protect them, he made Egypt even more so into the greatest, strongest nation in the whole world and wealthy. As, and that was Joseph who did that. Now you finally have this Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. He doesn't care about what promises. What he sees is that the Israelites are too big and too strong and too great, and they're going to take over Egypt if we don't watch out. So he makes some terrible edicts, if you will, and that would be for all of the handmaidens or the uh, midwives to start to kill the babies of the Israelites, the Hebrew children. Kill the children. That's how we'll solve this problem. And so if it's a male child, kill them. And in fact... As you get to the end of Exodus, it, we see also how that didn't work. God was fulfilling these promises. It's so interesting how many times you see in Scripture when men tried to thwart or stop the plans of God, and they every time fail. They can't do it. We're seeing that in, in Acts, right? That's what we talked about this past week, how, how men tried to thwart this. They tried to shut them up. We'll see it in chapter 4, Peter and John. Y'all don't talk anymore, you know? And, and, and Paul, we're going to kill you. But the gospel keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. God's plan of redemption cannot be stopped. No matter if the strongest of people in all of the world, like Pharaoh at this point, tries to stop it with all of his power to order people to murder in order to stop it, that can't even stop God's plan. And so we see it continue, and he continues to make these increasingly strong demands. And so it says at the end of chapter 1, he commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews shall cast, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Every son born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, remember, when this was written by Moses, Moses wrote this without chapter breaks, right? Y'all remember that? In fact, he wrote it without verse numbers. Those were added later. We can see when those were added. And so the narrative of this story just continues from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And sometimes we don't read it that way. We kind of see some break in the action. But, but when you go... He commanded them to throw the sons into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, uh, took as his wife a Levite woman. That in and of its essence, 
is a statement of rebellion or hope, right? When you have the Pharaoh announcing, we're going to kill all of the sons, it would seem like you're living in such a culture and climate and place that the best thing to do is just not even get married. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you do? You get married, you have kids, and they're going to kill my sons. But here you go from throw all the sons into the Nile, the Hebrews were still marrying. The Hebrews were still gathering together. The Hebrews were still doing what married couples do. Y'all, can, y'all know what that is, by the way. They were still doing it. They were still carrying on as if the Pharaoh's word didn't matter because they had a promise, and that promise was continuing. So you had this Levite uh, man, this uh, man of the house of Levi. By the way, at this point, it doesn't tell us the name of Moses' parents. It does later in chapter 6. But at this point, it does not. It's continuing this story as if this is what the Hebrews, this is what the Israelites were doing generally, right? Not just this one man, but this is what they're doing. A man from Levi, house of Levi, married a Levite woman. Uh, The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And so they had a child. She conceived, bore the child. If she lets them, remember what happened. The midwives are supposed to take the sons and cast them into the Nile, but the Hebrew women were, were uh, strong and they couldn't pull that off. And so here's this one again who has the son and she hides the son for three months. As it becomes more and more difficult, more and more difficult to hide the son, she sees he's a fine child, which at three months old, they're, they're all fine. I mean, let's just be honest. After that, it, that's when it starts getting rough. She hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of brushes and bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Now, when we have this image, the Nile becomes the place of death, right? I mean, could you imagine? You see a, a child, a son, throw them in the Nile. The Nile's no small river, you know, it's a little bit bigger than the French broad or something like that. And so the Nile is this big river, no no child is going to survive this. And so when you see one, throw them in the Nile, you throw them in the water. The water becomes the place of judgment and death. The water becomes the place of judgment and death for those. And so now you have this mom who has a son that she desperately wants to save and she can't hide him any longer so she took him and she makes a basket now there's several passages in exodus that really tie back to genesis put these two books together this one is one of them you have water as judgment that's coming uh, 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 and, and and symbolizes death and now you have one who has a basket made for him that will safely bring him through the water. Does that make sense to everybody? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Does that happen before? Noah. You say, well, Noah have a basket. Noah's basket was a good bit bigger than Moses' basket. Rest assured. But did you know that the Hebrew word that is used here for basket is the same exact word that's used for ark? Basically, it's saying she created an ark for the baby so as to be safe in the midst of the judgment waters, right? 
She's casting him in with this ark. Now that word, understand our English language has a lot of vocabulary. Many of these languages don't have many vocabulary words, so context matters. It's the same word for ark that's being used here. I think the word is tiba. So that word in the context, you recognize it could be a huge boat, if you will, or a small basket. Either way, it is a, it is a, a, a piece of um, uh, either, either a boat, basket, or whatever it is. It is something that's going to safely, safely bring them through the water and judgment. Here, Moses, as he's writing about even this story, which is his own birth, is drawing attention to the fact that once again, God is going to deliver his people from the judgment of the world that comes upon the world. And so here the baby is thrown in. She puts the child in the basket into the river and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it and saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, she took pity on him and said, This is one for the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now you have this action here. Of course, what you see in chapter 2 are really three events from the life of Moses. His birth here as a Hebrew child, his rescue here from, from this uh, judgment that comes, and you see the action of his sister. Now remember it says that every daughter shall live. In chapter 2, I think it's 10 daughters, if you will, from Pharaoh's to Moses' sisters, all these other ladies who come into play here that work out this plan for the providence of God. And what you do see here is providence. I want you to remember, there is no such thing in God's word or God's plan as happenstance or chance, right? I mean, if you read, I love, one of my favorites is, is the book of Ruth. And it talks in the book of Ruth where it says, you know, Ruth happened into the field of Boaz. And, and, and Boaz happened to catch her, happened to be in the field that day, which he's normally not. Y'all see how that works? Those ways of saying it happened to be, if you just come back, and sometimes we do this too much, if you just step back and you think, well, man, that is great coincidence, or we say even stuff like, what great luck. And when people say to me, good luck, Josh, you know what I tell them? Nothing. I say thank you because I don't want to be a jerk. But I do want to say I don't believe in luck, but I know what you mean. Because we as Christians don't believe in luck. There's not chance that's left up here. God is in control of all things, even down to the very sun that's coming down into these windows right now, to the drink y'all spilled on your shirt out there when you were trying to eat. Nothing happens outside of God's control. And when you say to me, Josh, that's too much, I think that's too much, let me tell you what the opposite side of that. If things are happening outside of God's control, that's where we don't want to be, and that's too much. That's where it gets scary. Because even bad things that happen to us under God's control and care, whether he does them or allows them, even those things, when they happen to us and we know God's in control, they have a purpose for our good. If God is not in control, then what happens has no purpose. But here, it's not by chance. It's not by happenstance. This is what we call providence. God's care over all things at all times 
Moses was in the basket and Pharaoh's daughter happened to come by and see him. Happened to come by. God is in control. This is providence. This is not just, you think God is leaving up his perfect plan of salvation and redemption? You think he's leaving it up just by chance? I thank God he's not. When Jesus hung on the cross, God did not go, shoo, I'm glad that worked out, you know? He was orchestrating these things to bring about his salvation. And here he does it. He brings it about. They, they, they come along. And not only that, Moses' sister, she's smart enough to jump in. She's taking pity. She sees the baby. It is the Pharaoh's daughter's responsibility to throw that child into the river and kill it at that moment. That's what Pharaoh said to do. But now we see Moses' sister jump in. I can go get somebody to nurse the child if you want me to. Playing on the sympathy quickly, it works. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the child went, called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. How good did that work out? Not only did she go hide her baby, Pharaoh's daughter found the baby, and then Pharaoh's daughter didn't kill the baby. Pharaoh's daughter handed the baby back to her and said, I'll pay you to raise her. Raise him. Sorry. Don't get, let's get that straight. I'll pay you to raise him. That worked out pretty good, right? And so here God, again, in control, takes care of it. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, there's speculation here of why she named him Moses, a Hebrew name. It, it also can match a, uh, an Egyptian name at the same time of the same type of meeting. But what this means is to draw out. So even the name given to Moses by Pharaoh's daughter gives a sense of what Moses is going to do with his purpose in life as he's going to lead God's people out. He's going to draw out. She drew him out of the water. This gives this picture. Here we see how the baby Moses was rescued. We see his family identity. He is a Hebrew. He is of the, of the tribe of Levi, which was the priestly tribe. He is in that group. We put him here in this identity. His ethnic identity is seen. And so in this then, at the same time, he is raised as a Hebrew in the house of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's daughter takes him as her son. We're not sure what age Moses was whenever he was passed over. What we do know is Moses is aware in the next section that he is a Hebrew. Even though he's raised in the household of Pharaoh with all the privileges of Pharaoh, we also know that he understands he's an Israelite. He's in Hebrew because that is, becomes clear whenever we see what happens in the next scene that is there. Here, Moses is raised. Uh, a question becomes at this point. Will Moses be, act like a Hebrew, like an Israelite, or will he be a son of Pharaoh? That becomes the question, right? I mean, we see how he's rescued. We see how he's saved. He's raised by his mom for some time, turned over to be raised as a son in Pharaoh's house. How is Moses going to identify? What's Moses going to be? And so next question comes one day verse 11 when Moses had grown up uh, 
Moses here is of age at that point. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, treated as slaves, being mistreated out uh, as slaves by Pharaoh. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So Moses, being raised in Pharaoh's house, goes out to see the Hebrews and he identifies with them. So he's being beaten by an Egyptian. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He killed a man and buried him. Now, I find this to be interesting because I think when I first read this, and I, it, it may be the case, but let's do a little bit of let's do a little bit of study here. I think when I first read this, he looks this way and that, and seeing no one gives me this idea that he's making sure the coast is clear, right? And that he's hoping nobody sees him. But let's turn over to Isaiah 59. Y'all, everybody good with doing a little Bible research here? Isaiah 59, that's in your Bible. Isaiah 59 is, is talking about evil, oppression, God and how he handles these things and really speaks about judgment and redemption. Justice is the key word in Isaiah 59. Doing justice. What is just and what is right. What Moses sees in chapter 2 is injustice, right? You have one who is in power, who is abusing that power to one who is being oppressed, the slave. And so you have the one in power abusing the one who is oppressed. Too far. Moses is thinking this is too far. And so when he sees this in, chap in chapter, Moses reacts. And, and, and let's see what this says in chapter 59. Uh, verse 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. He's speaking about the lack of justice. Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it. This is verse 15 of Isaiah 59. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Verse 16, look at what it says. He saw that there was no man. Literally, that's the exact same phrase as chapter 2. Moses looks around and sees that there is no man, is what it says. He saw that it was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his arm brought him salvation and righteousness upheld him. In other words, it may just be comparing those two passages and understanding, because I think Isaiah 59 is a little clear here. What God sees is injustice, and when he looks around, nobody is fighting for the just. Not just that Moses is looking around going, hey, nobody's here. I think I can get away with this. Moses is seeing this Egyptian slave master beating another Hebrew in a way of oppressor is being beat, beaten down, you know, beating down the oppressed in a way that's uneven and unjust. And Moses looks around and says, is anybody going to do something about this? And maybe I think that's kind of what's happening here for Moses. Because clearly we see if Moses was checking to see if anybody was watching, he didn't do a very good job. Because the very next line, somebody says, you going to do just the same thing you did to that Egyptian? Moses here is not necessarily worried about somebody looking. He sees injustice and he reacts. And he thinks he's doing what is right. He's taking justice into his own hands. He thinks he's doing what is right. And he steps up and he acts. He acts because nobody else would. 
That's exactly what Isaiah 59 is saying, is that God looks around and sees that nobody is just on the earth. He has to act. He has to do something. And it gives that same sense here for Moses. Why is that important? Because Moses understands, Moses understands the need for justice in what is right, but Moses tries, tries to bring justice in his own strength and in his own power, in his own way. And what he has to realize is that this is God. Justice comes from God, right? And so to do this in your own strength is only going to lead to worse or greater problems. This is not an example to follow at all. So if you see injustice, don't go killing the other person, right? That's not the example here. The example is that, yes, we should fight for justice, but we must do it God's way. Because here Moses tries to take it in his own hands, and it, 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 it fails. So, but maybe he thinks it's not going to fail. He puts the Egyptian in the sand. He goes out the next day. Obviously, he's not ashamed of what he did. He goes out the next day. He's just the next day back at it. And when he goes out the next day, behold, two Hebrews are struggling together. They're fighting. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Now, surely he's trying to help. Again, let's do this right. You know, why are y'all fighting? What's going on here? Now he sees two equals fighting. What's this? Why are y'all doing these things? Why are you fighting? And he answered, hoping that these are now he's his people. Moses has identified ultimately as a Hebrew here. He, he defends the Hebrew. He's come out as, I'm one of you. But remember, he's grown up in the house of Pharaoh with the privileges of Pharaoh and his family. And so he thinks he's identifying with his people, but he does not get the reception he likes or desires. Because when he says to them, uh, why do you strike your companion? The guy answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Moses is a prince. He's a prince of Egypt and Pharaoh's house. But who made you that over us? How do you speak to us? In fact, look at your own self. You think you're a prince over us. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was terrified. Why? Because he tried to identify with his people in his own way, and it didn't work. And now, where is his home? In fact, you see this. He is thinking Moses was afraid and thought, surely, surely, uh, wait a minute, what does it say? Surely the... I, Surely the thing is known. Every time I say surely like that, I think of a woman's name, Shirley. Surely the thing is known. In other words, now everybody knows it. And when Pharaoh heard about it, it got all the way to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh heard about it, he sought to kill Moses. So now Moses is what? Homeless in the sense. He tried to defend his people, but that didn't work. It backfired. He tried to, 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 to do it in a way to fight for justice and what's right, but now he's not even welcome back to Pharaoh's house where he belongs. He's not welcome amongst the Hebrews. He's scared there. He's not welcome with Pharaoh's house. He has absolutely nothing left here. The second part is how Moses, though he's concerned with the Israelites, his attempts to identify with them has left him homeless. It did not work. And it answers the question, ultimately, will his people follow him? And for Moses, it's no. They're not following his leadership. They're not following what he's done. In fact, they, they, they hold it over him that he's a prince in Pharaoh's house. So Moses now has not, he doesn't have them to go, and now he goes back. He is, as it says there next, he has to flee to another land altogether. 
homeless, as we'll get to in a minute, a sojourner. So Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Midian was a son of Abraham and his wife Keturah, as it tells us in Genesis chapter 25. He flees there to Midian. And now the priest of Midian, which we find out is Jethro, right? The priest of Midian had seven daughters. A third scene. Moses goes to a foreign land. The priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them. Moses, in his very nature and character, is one who's going to fight for the oppressed, right? And here, he did it before, it didn't work, but this time, he fights for these and their flock, and he saves them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian, think of that, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. And even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. The, uh, she gave him a son, called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now I find this, I, I find this whole scene to be to be interesting because Moses, who was born and, and, and put into the, the Nile, obviously we, we have in, in Exodus chapter 2 the beginning of how God is going to deliver his people. Just to, just to come back to that, in chapter 1, his people are, are now being oppressed. They're in bondage. They're in slavery. It's not going well for his people. God had them in Egypt, but he promised them he wasn't going to leave them there. And so he's got to deliver them out of Egypt. How will he deliver them out of Egypt? You start to see in Exodus chapter 2 that God is going to raise up what we'll see and raise up a deliverer who will come and fight for his people and bring them out. That's what's starting to happen. And I, I emphasize that because... That's what God always does in the scriptures. Whenever it's time for his people to be delivered or brought out, he raises up a leader, a deliverer. And all of those deliverers or leaders, if you will, look at the book of Judges, look here with, with, with Moses, you'll see it with Joshua, you'll see it with people like Caleb all the way down. He raises them up in Judges. He keeps raising somebody up to help deliver his people. He does this over and over again because that's God's way. And all of those deliverers are going to point to the greater deliverer, right? Who is Jesus Christ the Lord. This imagery right here is vitally important to understanding the very nature of redemption. How is God going to save his people? He's going to raise up a deliverer. And Moses has to flee from persecution even when he's a baby. Who else had to flee from persecution when he was a baby? Jesus. Moses got to flee out of Egypt. Jesus is going to have to flee to Egypt. Y'all see what I'm saying? Both of them are going to be homeless, if you will. Both of them will find some refuge in a foreign land. And I find that to be interesting because oftentimes we think of us believers being outside of home. Y'all know what I mean? Not being home, not being where we need to be. In fact, the New Testament tells us as we as Christians are what? Sojourners and pilgrims. Strangers and wanderers. 
He calls us that. Why? Because this world is not our home. And here you see Moses having to leave his own and and, and go out of it. And there is where he finds some peace and solace, right? There's where he does it. But even while he's a sojourner, as it says in chapter 2, he's not just a sojourner. That joker is a sojourner in a foreign land, a sojourner of sojourners. Even though he has that, he recognizes that God is still watching over him and protecting him and raising him up to do what he needs to do. In this, in this same sense, then, we see that this scene, he's a fugitive in a foreign land in Midian. As a foreigner in a foreign land, all of this is background, I believe, to what's going to happen in Genesis chapter 3. When you add Genesis 1, here's the background of Israel and what's going on in the history of Israel. Then you bring in Genesis 2. Here's the one God is bringing up to raise, to deliver his people. Now you come to Genesis 3 in just next week, hopefully, good Lord willing. And in Genesis 3, what happens? God will call his deliverer out. He will call. It begins that call of God revealing himself. And so all of this is leading us to this moment. And there's a couple things I want to do. I want to look now, having, having kind of seen those three there of how God does this. Now let's look there in verse 23 through 25. Verse 23 through 25, the end of it. During those many days, I think if you look at Exodus chapter 7, you realize in verse 7, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they they spoke to Pharaoh. So, So great many days will be passed while Moses is in Midian. From the time Moses does this until till the time he comes back. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. In other words, the king dies, and here comes another king, and the slavery continues. It just gets worse and worse for God's people. And it says he cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, there's a great pattern here for who God is. In fact, just in these few verses becomes this incredible statement of the character of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. His character and nature. First of all, his people, his people are there in slavery and bondage, and they cry out for help. They cry out to God. In other words, they're calling on him to do something. They're pleading with him. We dare say they're praying to him to do something. And what does it say about God? God heard their groaning. This is no small thing. In fact, what we'll find out in just a little bit. And, and I, I'll go ahead and tip my hat because it'll be a couple of weeks till we get there and y'all will forget by then. What we'll find out in just a little bit, when God sends Moses back to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, y'all remember the song? That's what he's saying to him. Let my people go. When he says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm not doing it. And then God brings the 10 plagues Allison, that's another word I mess up sometimes, plagues. I don't want to sound too country. When God brings the 10 
plagues, those plagues have a specific purpose. The purpose is that they're not just random. They're going after the very gods of Egypt themselves. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile. Let's turn that to blood. The Egyptians worshipped the sun. In fact, Pharaoh was the son of the sun, the ray god himself. Let's turn that darkness, and they were not going to be able to see. They worshipped their livestock. They worshipped their, uh, they bowed down to all of these other things. And systematically, one by one, God is demonstrating that the gods you worship have zero power. The gods you worship can do nothing to me. In fact, I'll turn them off at a moment and you will see who is greater, right? It's a display of the greatness and power of the God of Israel, And he displays that by destroying any notion they may have that there's a God who can stand up to him. And so here when I say this, I'm saying this because this should already be seen. Remember, and I repeat this a lot, the gods of this world, because in Psalm 115, Psalm 135, it does it in in Jeremiah, it does it again in, in Isaiah. It's kind of a phrase that keeps going. The gods of this world have eyes but cannot see ears but cannot hear, mouths but cannot speak, have feet but cannot walk, arms with no power, right? And and what the psalmist says is they are all of these things and those who worship them become like them. In other words, those who trust in gods that have no power and have no strength, they have no power and have no strength. And so here, it's testifying to God hears cries of his people. This is not just simply in hearing. He's listening. Y'all know the difference between hearing and listening. Y'all probably discuss that sometimes. You hear me, but are you listening to me? Have y'all, y'all may not have ever dealt with that. Your communication skills, I'm sure, in this room are quite exquisite. God is not just hearing his people. He's listening to them. He, 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 he has not just that ear, he, he can hear their cries. So when they are struggling, when they're weak, when they're crying out to him, God hears his people. And what does it say next? He heard their groaning and he remembered their covenant. You think God forgot? No, he didn't forget. That's not what he remembered their covenant means. Here to remember does not mean that it was forgotten. It meant that God is going to bring to forefront again. He's going to bring on the forefront again the promise he made to his people. It's time for him to act. And I love how God does this because he uses the prayers of his people. Sometimes we think, well, if God's in control of all things, then why do we pray? Because God uses the prayers of his people to act. So he is not only molding us and shaping us, he's not only ordained the ends, he's going to deliver his people. He ordained the means by which they will get there. They're going to cry out, he's going to respond, and he's going to act on the promises he made. And so God is ordaining the means by which it happens and the ends. So prayer is an act on our behalf of recognizing. It's molding us and shaping us and recognizing that we're absolutely dependent on him. And the people of Israel are saying, we are stuck in bondage. We can't get out unless God acts. And that's where salvation begins all the time, at the desperate cry of God's people. 
And when you cry out, people always say to me, how could I cry out desperately to God? I'm scared he may not hear me. If you cry out desperately to God, there is never a moment in the scriptures that I can find that he does not respond to the cries of his people. He responds to them. So God heard their cries. He knows he has a promise that he will act upon, but, but also recognize that. God's action is not random to the prayers of his people. The prayers of his people line up with the promises of God. Does that make sense? In other words, when we pray, we also need to be praying God's word back to him. We know what God has promised, so cry out to God through his word. And so the people say, didn't you say you wouldn't leave us here? Didn't you say that, God, please don't leave us here? God says, that's right. You know my word, and here I will show you how powerful I am. God heard their groanings, remembered his promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel. Notice what he does here. He heard and he saw. Y'all see that? They have Gods of this world have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. But the God of Israel is different. This God is alive and he's involved with his people and he heard their cries and he saw their need. He saw the people of Israel recognizing them and God knew. God knew. God heard, saw, and knew. I have here in my Bible Genesis 15, 13, and 14. And I'll be honest, I forgot what it says, but I'm going to look it up right now. Genesis 15, 13, and 14. God is speaking to Abraham. And he says, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. Listen to this promise. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Y'all see that? Not a surprise to God. He says, This is exactly what's going to happen. God heard their cries, saw their need, and responds to his promises that he made. I uh, then see, you see God hearing, seeing, Knowing, he turns here. He turns and it says, first chapter 3, verse 1, don't get excited, we're not going too far. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, keep going down, and God comes to him. A bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Just in chapter 3, God responds. God heard, he sees, he knows Responds. In this, we start to see a great picture of the character of God. Remember, remember, this has happened before, but as we read the Old Testament, remember how it all unfolds. What we call progressive revelation. We, we get bits and pieces throughout the Old Testament of how great God is and how good He is, right? And every story is adding to the testimony of his greatness and his goodness. And here we have it again. God's people were in bondage, but they've got a promise that they can hold on to. 
that God will deliver them. They cry out to him, he heard them. He sees them. He knows his promise and he acts on his promise by coming and revealing himself to his people like he had never done before. Oh, he had revealed himself to Abram, to Isaac and Jacob. But now, now he's coming to Moses, having raised Moses up, saved him from judgment in the river, protected him through Pharaoh's daughter, even got him up out of the land because sometimes we need to get out of the positions we're in, right, to see the very need that God has for us in doing it. Raises him up out of that, gets him as a sojourner, and Moses is going to hear the word of God spoken again, audibly to him. And God at this time is not just going to reveal himself, he's going to tell him his name the most intimate revelation that we can see up until this point. God says, I am who I am, Moses. Now go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Exodus 3 is incredible. But I love how Exodus 1 and Exodus 2 sets it right up to see how God delivers his people. We can say tonight, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and I use this as a testimony even to this point, we still to this day serve a God who hears, sees, and knows his people. And we still serve a God that has not once, not one time gone back on any promise he made. That's exactly what we see here in Exodus chapter 2. We see a God who knows his promises, but he's going to keep them. He's going to deliver his people. And the greatest powers on earth will do all that they can. Even the devil will use them sometimes to make it seem like, we'll get there in a little bit, and those priests of, of Pharaoh, they'll throw their little rod down and make a serpent. The devil can even keep up with that sometimes, but at the end, there is no power that can stand against him, right? Our God. And that's what we begin to see even now. And so the comfort we take from knowing this is even when we read here in Exodus, we recognize that the God we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he still hears the cries of his people. And he still sees and knows what we're going through and what we're dealing with. And he always keeps his promises that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. In the end, he has revealed himself to us so that we don't have to guess who he is and where he's at. We know exactly who he is and where he's at. And in that, we can trust him. Moses will learn to trust him here. We must learn the same thing. All of this, of course, as we'll look to Moses, is pointing us to that greater deliverer, Jesus Christ, who is evidence of the fact that God sees, hears, and knows and always keeps his promise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for the gift of your word and the fact that, God, you are always the same. And so keep your promises amongst us even now, Father. For those in this room who are hurting, remind them that you see, hear, and know all that they're going through. And you will never leave them or forsake them. You keep your promises. All of us, Father, as we step into every day, help us to step into every day with the confidence that our God is alive. And with his eyes, he sees. With his ears, he hears. With his mouth, he speaks. With his feet, he has come to us. And with his hands, he is mighty to save us. And so, God, may we rejoice. 
and worship you with all that we have. For you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.